since uh, when I was here in the fall, some of you, mm, we did some discussion of some points of Abhidhamma. So rather than pick up there and carry on because some of you haven't heard anything, I thought I would give just a kind of a general overview of what the Abhidhamma is, somewhat in relation to Western psychology, how the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, is similar to or can be compared to or complementary with Western psychology. So, if you keep in mind that Western psychology is a couple of hundred years old, Freud was about a hundred years ago, <coughs> and the Abhidhamma is 2,500 years, or has been around for 2,500 years or more. <coughs> and the Abhidhamma is really a It's the knowledge gained by, or verified by, thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions of people who have spent their life practicing meditation to observe the mind and the body and to see how they function. It was first initially taught by the Buddha, we think, and uh, then practiced by monks and nuns and lay people during the Buddha's lifetime and subsequently since then. And what it is, is it's a reservoir of the knowledge of these practitioners who have spent their time observing the mind. And it is uh, a very elaborate description of the workings of the mind. It's like a very detailed map of the mind and how it works in relation to the body. And it is concerned only with what the Buddha called or talked about or identified as the four ultimate realities. Trees and dogs and people and houses are not ultimate realities. They're compounded things. The Buddha identified the four ultimate realities as the mind or consciousness, the mental states or the mental factors that arise with the mind, materiality or the experience of physicality, and Nibbana as the fourth ultimate reality. And the Abhidhamma is a very elaborate, detailed description of each of these four realities. Primarily in the meditation, we're concerned with the mind and the mental states in relationship to the body, the materiality. And we think about the fourth reality, Nibbana, for the most part. But in the, Abhid in the Abhidhamma, man's or human's consciousness or mental state is generally regarded as out of balance, not in harmony. And the goal of Buddhist psychology, or the, the epitome of uh, the mind or consciousness in Buddhist psychology, is self-knowledge. <clears throat> the Abhidhamma also includes 
uh, the meditation and practices that are needed, both the tranquility and the concentration practices and the insight practice, that are needed to take man's or human's normal consciousness and rearrange it to an enlightened consciousness or to change our whole perception and relationship to the world, the world being materiality and mentality around us. The most important characteristic of the Abhidhamma, and it is also the most important <coughs> or the most major distinction between it and Western psychology, is that the whole Abhidhamma talks about everything that we know all of life as we experience it, without any reference to a self, or a soul, or a person, or a personality, or an ego. And it describes the whole experience of everything in our life without positing that there is a soul or a person that is, that's doing it. But rather, describes the experience of life as a flow of events and experiences that is just phenomena arising in moments of consciousness, consciousness fluxing many hundreds of thousands of times a second. What we call personality or ego or who I am, who you are, or how we identify people in Western psychology is really a very compacted intermingling of certain compacted intermingling and habitual, habitually arising patterns of consciousness that habitually repeat so much so that we identify someone as being that type of person, having that type of personality or that type of ego. But it's nothing more than very compacted and frequently, habitually arising states of mind. So first we'll look at uh, the constituent elements within consciousness or within the mind or within an experience of reality. And then, if we have time, we'll look at how they are synthesized and how they operate in a process throughout time. So the first is the first of the realities that we've talked about is consciousness. It's the mind. It's the element of knowing in the mind. It's important to know or to see within yourself your own experience that the mind is constantly changing. We can see it because sometimes we're happy, next time later we're sad, sometimes we're jealous, sometimes we're not. So we know on some level that the mind changes. But in fact, the Buddha identified the mind is changing much more rapidly than that. But even at a very basic level, we can affirm that understanding of the mind is constantly changing. 
Buddha also identified that no two states of consciousness are the same. They may be similar, they may have a lot of the same components, but the intensities of all of the factors that go up to make a state of consciousness or a state of mind, consciousness and its contents, are changing. There are different categories of consciousness. There is, of course, seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, tasting, touching, smelling, and the Buddhists also call the functioning of the mind as one of the senses. The Buddha also identified that some of our experience is a result of previous actions. What we directly experience is a result. The law of karma states that every action produces a seed of a result, a resultant. Actions that were performed prior to this period of time may be giving result in this moment. Or some actions performed in a previous time are giving result now. And it results in our experience of sight, sounds, taste, smells, touches, and thoughts. What we actually see, smell, taste, and touch, etc., is not tricky here. Is not within our control. It re- arises because of a result. How we relate to it, whether we choose to enjoy, like it, enjoy it, and uh, get attached to it, or whether we dislike it, want to get away from it, hate it, harm it in some way, is not a result. But it is how we respond to that action in the present moment. So there are function, there are what we call karma consciousness, our action in the present moment. There is resultant consciousness, which is the result of that. There is, um, how do we say, when someone has so cleaned up their mind, or cleaned up their act, so to speak, that they act without karma. Then they also have consciousness, but it's purely functional, does not create results, does not plant the seed for results. Briefly, that's consciousness, or the first reality, that the first of the ultimate realities that the Buddha talked about. The second that we're really more familiar with from a meditation practice is, oh, by the way, as I ramble on and talk, if you have any questions or don't understand something or have any comments or anything, please ask or interject or whatever, because that way I can speak more directly to what your own interests or concerns or questions are. So now that I've briefly introduced consciousness and mind from the, the first the realities, is there any questions? Of course, the Buddha's talked about it, but, or in the Abhidhamma, it's very extensive, but I just wanted to briefly mention it. He said that um, the results 
the question that David asked goes into, to answer it correctly, we have to go into a lot of detail and have to know a lot more about consciousness and mental states than what I've given. So, rather than just say, no, that's not quite right and not explain it, I just touched on it. Because I want to give an overview of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, and the, the result, the resultant behavior is never, ever the same. I mean, it's never repeated exactly. Mm. So, uh, it's, it's very subtle, you know, in terms of whether, how much is karmic result, how much is, is um, conditioning, how much is, I mean, but, it's so... Yeah, let me, let me just say, in that, in that particular case, the fact that he saw a dog would be a karmic result if it was an unpleasant experience. For example, that unpleasant experience is because of some, some action in your past that was unwholesome. If you saw a, ple- a beautiful flower, as you go outside, you see a beautiful flower. The seeing of that is the result of some wholesome action oh, even in your nice past. Dog. Could be a nice dog, right? Oh, yes, you see a nice dog, dog, and a very dog, dog. And, and nasty dog. That's that was a, that if it was unwholesome, right? From an unwholesome, yeah, from an unwholesome. And generally, all that we see here in taste and touch has pretty definable pleasant or unpleasant, and it's only within that range that wholesome and unwholesome give result. Wholesome actions give results as pleasant results, unwholesome actions give unpleasant results unpleasant sights, unpleasant sounds, unpleasant... So these people out here that are banging away on the roof, okay, today, or the last couple of days, that's a very unpleasant sound when you're meditating. All, all those yogis in there have, have committed some unwholesome action in the past, resulting in their experiencing unpleasant sounds today. There's actually a yogi in there who mentioned it. Probably likes it. In the kitchen that she's getting the most incredible rushes every time they... Yeah. Yeah. It takes off time. <laughs> then that means that there has not been any unwholesome action or karmic result, right? Because she likes it. It is possible to skew the mind to to find pleasant what the vast majority finds unpleasant. It is possible to do that. Yeah, but that doesn't answer my question. Um, I mean, go ahead. That's me too. Um, if you find a dog yes. pleasant yes. or unpleasant, right. if you find a dog pleasant, yeah. then that means that you've had no unwholesome karmic residue from that, from an experience. Or if you find a dog unpleasant, that means you've had, it could be the same yeah. dog for, the, for different yes, people, right. you know? Right. Generally, correct. Mm. Without getting too specific. Okay, let's not yeah. get too specific. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Yeah. It's like another can of worms that you might talk about anyway. Yeah. Um, in relation to <laughs> in relation to um, the process of through meditation practice or through the practice of uh, mindful observation of one's of one's process and one's tendencies, etc. Um, 
how does one, how is the process of working through past karmas, either from past lives or from this life, um, like, like substantial karmas, karmas that result in very strong tendencies, like a particular tendency to react in a particular way, which you do cyclically and cyclically. Um, and how does How does the efficacy of being able to completely clear clear the slate, so to speak, mm -hmm. and completely neutralise that tendency, so that if one actually sees clearly the full nature of that tendency or that particular pattern, and sees through it, so that one is no longer actually mm -hmm. bound into continuing with that particular cycle, even though there might be elements of it still alive, is it possible to actually? Yes. Does one actually? Is one actually right. clearing the slate? So right. I'm going to talk about that. It's Yes, and I'll talk about that a little bit. After describing the mind, then I'll talk about the function or the role of meditation in cleaning up our acts, so to speak. Now moving right along to the second or ultimate reality. I'll give you something to occupy your mind. I need one. The second <coughs> is, the second ultimate reality we would identify is the mental factors or the attributes of mind that arise in every moment of consciousness. These we're much more familiar with because we observe them in our meditation and we try to develop them and to strengthen them. Is there enough to go around? No. Uh, <coughs> Mark. We can or maybe somebody can run upstairs and zip off another few. Huh? There's, there's some coming around. There's still more. Oh, we need a few more. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you can use this one. Someone over there want to get this one? How many others? So the mental factors that the Buddha identified, there are 52. <clears throat> and they serve generally, from Western psychological point of view, they serve these three <laughs> functions. Perception, cognition, and affective being uh, relationship to whatever it is we're experiencing. I have a list of seven common mental factors. These are mental factors that arise in every moment of consciousness. They don't know the object. That's the nature of consciousness itself. But they serve as functions or attributes or filters through which the mind is knowing or contacting the object. And any state of mind that you find yourself in can be analyzed in terms of these 52 factors. On here are, of course, there isn't included here every mental condition that Western psychology talks about. 
but any condition or psychological or emotional response identified in Western psychology can be identified here, even though it's not apparent here. When the Buddha taught this understanding of the mind, or this description of the mind, he was only interested in teaching what needed to be known so that one could learn to free the mind, not to describe all the intricate possibilities that had no, or to develop knowledge about the mind that had no benefit for freeing the mind, or for purifying the mind. You could write commentaries and commentaries and commentaries about functioning of the mind that didn't have any benefit for liberating the mind or for freeing the mind. And the Buddha didn't bother with that type of information. So he only identified and talked about what was necessary or useful for freeing the mind from its habitual tendencies that cause suffering. So the first seven, in the, the seven common uh, factors, I'm going to find out what time it is, will I? Uh, 4.30, we stop? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'll have to come again. <laughs> the first... No more questions. No, 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 please, questions, because, uh, you know, if I don't finish today, you can invite me back again. The first seven common factors arise with every consciousness. Contact is the contact between the sense object that's outside of us, the visible object, the sound, the taste, or whatever it is, the sense organ, the eye, the ear, the tongue, whatever, and the mind all coming together at one time so that we become aware of seeing. It's that contact of object, organ, and consciousness, or mind, consciousness, that we're talking about here. The feeling that arises with every consciousness is either a pleasant or unpleasant physical or mental feeling. It's not emotion. It's not uh, what we generally regard as emotion, emotional feeling. But it's the pleasantness or unpleasantness of each experience or the neutral mental feeling. As we sit in the room, we're seeing many things. We're hearing many things. We're feeling many sensations in the body. For the most part, we have a neutral mental reaction to it. Nothing is sticking. After we sit here for an hour, ah, then we're going to start having some unpleasant one. Or if I say something that you don't happen to agree with, you're going to have an unpleasant mental feeling. feeling is that pleasant or unpleasantness that arises with each consciousness. Perception is the ability to recognize or recall what it is that you're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Volition. This is the ethically the important characteristic of the mind where there's either where one can choose either wholesome or unwholesome relationship to the object. 
in this context, it's just talking about the relation of the mind to the object. It's just, this, this is. Yeah, this, in this case, it's just the mind getting to the object. It isn't wholesome or unwholesome here. How, how does one choose without their baby door? What we think is the doer, and the, just, to, just to briefly, I mean, that question, could people write books on that question? But what we think is the doer is nothing more than a very compact, habitually arising process of mind that is conditioned by past actions. One consciousness conditioning the next, repeated and habitually. So what we think, what we think, just to just to just to give you a uh, quick analogy, we look outside and we see a car, what we call a car. If we took that car apart into all of its pieces, took out every nut and bolt and put it, spread it all out, where would you say the car was? Uh, no car, no such thing. There's just nuts and bolts and tires and this and that and the other thing. We call it a car. That's just a word, a name that we use for that collection of things that does what cars do. The collection of mental functions that makes decisions that we call a person is nothing more than a collection of different functions in the mind. Are you, are you then implying predestined? Nope. <laughs> I'm implying, or I'm talking about cause and condition. Cause, condition, cause and effect. Well, if it's not predestined, then, uh, like, what I'm asking is, then there's the implication that there's freedom in karma? Yeah, there is. Okay, then, uh, if, where does that come from? And if that, wherever that comes from, has the strong implication, the feeling of doer? It comes from mindfulness, mindfulness. in the moment of experience. That's where you have the choice. Without mindfulness, you don't have a choice. With mindfulness, then you have a choice of how, and it's how these, to react. It's this composite of mind factors that has a choice. Yes, right. What do we call you or me? <laughs> I've talked with you about this subject before, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> this is your favorite question, I know. <laughs> uh, volition. Concentration, in this, is the ability of the mind to stay on one object momentarily, to say, just this object. Psychic life is the general vitality of the mind. Attention is the turning of the mind towards whatever sense object is arising at the time. These seven things, whenever we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, always arise. The particular mental factors, the six particular mental factors, you can see the initial application of mind, the sustained application of mind, the effort, the joy, wish to do, and the resolution. These are the factors primarily developed in meditation. We talk about the aiming of the mind or the connecting with the object. This is the initial application of the mind. Sustaining the mind on the object is the second of the six particular factors. 
effort, of course, is obviously developed in, in meditation. What's wish to do? Uh, the wish to do is just the mind. Uh, it's 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 not a wish like a sense desire to do something or to have something or to get something or experience something, but it's just a choosing decision. It's a, a choosing. Yeah, it's like decisiveness. I mean, a resolution is decisive. The wish to do is. Mm, it's not. Uh, <laughs> how do we talk? Wish to do. To do what? It it's not to do, it's just to be with that object, okay. that experience. Okay. It's just the mind to go in that place okay. so for that moment. So the initial application and the sustained right. application and then right. the wish to stay with that. No, no, it's not the wish to stay with it. It's just the wish of the mind to, to be there on that object. So the mind going to a sight or going to a sound or going to a thought. Isn't that the same, the wish to stay with that? Uh, the sustain, the holding of the mind there would be the sustaining, but the wish to go there is is one also a factor of the mind. Okay. The wish to go there, the connecting with it, the staying with it, the resolution is the decisiveness of the mind, the effort of the mind, and the interest of the mind. Well, shouldn't the wish to do then have to be before the initial? Yeah. Oh no! Oh, this is not in these. Oh, these oh, do oh, not oh, arise oh, sequentially. Oh, these do not arise sequentially. Oh, they oh, all oh, arise oh, at the same time oh. in every. What about the seven common factors? Seven common factors also arising at the same time. At the same time? The seven common factors are in every moment 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 of consciousness. These particulars are in some moments of consciousness, not not all moments of consciousness. I I find it really helpful to to see these things as qualities that are are present with consciousness. Like descriptive terms of aspects or qualities that may or may not be present with consciousness. So those say that first seven, those qualities, those aspects are always present. If consciousness is there, they're always present. Then the others are more very ridiculous. But qualities is a very helpful yeah. word. To it's make. like if you have an apple, for example. You have a shape, you have a size, you have a color, you have a taste. You can't separate the color from the shape. When a consciousness arises, it has many different qualities. It has a size, a shape, a color, a taste. And that's what these mental factors are. You can't really separate out and say, here is this one, there is that one, and experience it just without any of the others. They all arise momentarily. The commons and the particulars are a little bit more difficult to understand. The unwholesome and the wholesome are very easy to understand because we experience them so much. Delusion is basic ignorance of our experience. Sloth and torpor is sleepiness, laziness. These are the things that we talk about as hindrances in meditation practice. False view, conceit, or pride. Shamelessness and remorselessness together is what we would call no conscience, not having a conscience, not caring what other people think about your actions, and you yourself not caring about your own actions. Just willy-nilly do what you want, never give a thought to how you feel, what your own standards of behavior or speech or thought would be, or what anyone else's would be. Lack of conscience. Doubt, greed, aversion, 
These we all know quite well from uh, our practice. The unwholesome factors don't all arise at the same time. When we're experiencing greed, we're not experiencing aversion. <coughs> and there are, there are some mutually exclusives in the, in the, in the unwholesomes. But the unwholesomes and the wholesomes can never arise at the same time. And it's the process of meditation to, through mental training, to weed out the unwholesomes and insert the wholesomes into our stream of consciousness. Why do you have figure two against some of these qualities under the wholesome? Oh, yeah, two buoyancy, two pliancy, two. Yeah, the two kinds of buoyancy? Uh, no, there are buoyancy of two things. There's buoyancy of the mind and there's buoyancy of the mental factors. So it's just this kind of a technical thing. But to make up the 25 wholesome signs, put in the numbers so you can understand that they were. What, what's your definition of false view? My definition or the Buddha's definition? Uh, let's go to both. The most basic false view in the Buddhist teaching is that there's a self or soul. There you go. And if you have that belief, then you're starting right out on the wrong foot. But most of us have that belief. And so we have to, through practice, through clear seeing, mm-hmm. we can begin to see it. Or we can begin to, and, to and see your, that it isn't there. Your definition. Same. <laughs> I'll verify the Buddha's teaching. <laughs> Well, let me see what it says in the Abhidhamma. It's called false view. Yeah. The pervasive assumption of Western psychology is that there's a fixed self or an ego, which in the Abhidhamma is considered a pernicious wrong view. So they're just basically starting out from completely opposite <laughs> places in reference to self, ego, soul, or whatever. In one sense, uh, you set the definition of uh, wrong view of the uh, seeing uh, things as permanent, yeah. satisfactory, and self. Not seeing any jhana. Yeah, an issue that no one You're supposed to wink after that term. To put the I think we have a general idea of what the wholesomes and unwholesomes are. <clears throat> what mental health is, or how mental health is described, is that the unwholesomes would be eliminated and the wholesomes would be inserted into the stream of consciousness because the unwholesomes and the wholesomes cannot exist at the same time. The way our normal consciousness is is heavily influenced or heavily infested with a lot of unwholesome mental factors. And when it is that way, when there's a lot of greed or aversion, envy, etc., the way the consciousness is described is a general heaviness and unwieldiness of the mental processes. 
where the force of habit predominates and changes and adaptations are undertaken very slowly, unwillingly, and to the least possible degree, where one's thought is rigid and inclined to dogma. And it takes a long time for one to learn from their own experience or from the advice of others. And one's affections or attachments and their aversions are fixed, unchanging, and biased. In general, the character proves more or less inaccessible, where you can't do anything with it. It's just locked in. The mind is locked in to a rigid, habitual, repetitive pattern of these unwholesome factors. Unlike Western psychology, the Buddha posited an ideal type, or someone who was mentally healthy, the epitome of mental health. And it's not there isn't a description in Western psychology of what a person with the top mental health, how they would appear, or what their mind would be like. But the way it's described in the Abhidhamma is that such a person or such a mind, or such a being, would not have any greed or desire for sensual pleasure, would not have any anxiety, no resentment, no fear of any sort, no attachment to dogmatic beliefs, no aversion to loss, no aversion to disgrace, or pain, or blame, or anger. No aversion to the experience of suffering. No need for approval. No need for pleasure. No need for praise. No desire for anything beyond what is essential and necessary for one's life. In which case, it is said that one would, there would be a prevalence of impartiality towards others and equilibrium at all times. Where the mind would be alert and calmly delight in ordinary and boring experiences. <laughs> this is a pretty exceptional being, as you can get. How many healthy people do we have? <laughs> <laughs> How many boring experiences? <laughs> Compassion and loving kindness would be strong. Perceptions would be quick and accurate. One would be composed and skillful in their actions, open and responsive to others' needs. Just as a general definition of what a healthy mind would be. Well, I don't know anyone like that. Yeah. I don't know anyone like that. Well, we're on the path. I'm sure. We're trying. <laughs> we're working towards it. Developing metta, mindfulness, things like that. So the mental health of someone or being improves by replacing the unwholesomes with the wholesomes. And the way to do it is through meditation, which is self-introspection intense. Generally it's understood that the mind or our experience before meditation practice or without much mindfulness is that there's a tremendous commotion in the mind of just consciousness all over the place. Just a very confusing commotion which results in certain patterns of 
thought and reaction and habit tending towards or dwelling mostly in the unwholesome place. But the process of meditation is really just to learn to observe that commotion, or that total chaos, or what appears to be total chaos in the mind. And as one learns to develop some mindfulness and some steadiness or some concentration, we can begin to see each individual moment of experience and how it is related to other moments of experience. So that basically the experience then is not one of commotion but clarity of how previous consciousness conditions and results in later consciousness and how reactions to that conditions later consciousness. Just by observing, one becomes clear in how it's all working, how it's all happening. The development of insight or wisdom is the ability of the mind to see more clearly and more distinctly the momentariness of successive moments of consciousness. And that results in the development of understanding of how the mind is working, how consciousness is arising and passing away, and how one conditions or affects the other. But initially, we aren't so able to do that because we are very subjectively identified with our experience. And only when the mind gets a little bit concentrated, a little bit focused, are we able to split off and observe our experience from a detached place, where then it's as if we're just aware of or able to observe the flow of consciousness as if it was not us, not me. As Joseph says, all of it coming from the person sitting behind you. But we can do that just from the training of mindfulness and concentration. And when the concentration gets built up a little bit, then you can observe the flow of consciousness in that way without being subjectively pulled into it. When one, of these 25 wholesomes that I mentioned here, when one develops mindfulness or tries to develop mindfulness, not all, but most of the wholesomes arise at the same time. When there's, when there's mindfulness, there will be buoyancy, pliancy, adaptability, proficiency, modesty, conscience, decisiveness, non-greed, non-hate, confidence, equanimity, and tranquility. They all arise at the same time so that with mindfulness, the mind becomes light, pliable, adaptable, can be with changing phenomena, can be with changing experience from one thing to the next. The mind becomes flexible, adaptable, can be in different situations quickly when mindful. When not mindful, the mind is stiff, rigid, unmoving, dogmatic, 
stuck. I think it would it would be it would be basic delusion if you're attached to the experience, believing it to be me or mine, or that there is an I in there. Then there'd be this delusion and, and false view, or there could be pride, attachment, the conceit of I exist here. The when you're able to when the mind's concentrated and you're able to split off as an observer and an observed, then mindfulness has to be present. The concentration under the common factors becomes very strong where the mind can stay steady on a single experience or a single moment for the period for that period of time. Identification. Mm. Wrong view, delusion. What else is it? Joseph mentioned something at the um, workshop he did down there. He talked to it directly. He kept calling it the villain in his words. Wrong view. Was, was, was that when he was talking about wrong view? Yeah. <laughs> the wrong view of I. Of identifying with anything. He said even including uh, that place, the doer, that doer place or consciousness. Whenever there's attachment to anything, there's identification. Right. Either attachment by wanting to get rid of it or wanting it to stay, it's identification. As soon as you're attached to something, then there's there's a me that's doing it. Is tranquility always present in in Halston? Tranquility always present, yeah. Wouldn't that, I hadn't. That's the positive side. What I found very useful on the negative side was to realize that if agitation or restlessness is present, it's always an unwholesome mind state. Because sometimes the mind will be telling you something really important and you, you, you can't believe it. But if you realize that there's restlessness there or agitation, it's a very good, I find it very helpful guide to realize it's actually an unwholesome mind state in that moment. Restlessness is. Yeah, well, I think agitation and restlessness in that yeah, sense yeah. are interchangeable words. Yeah. Just different translation. Yeah. But, so tranquility is, I hadn't really thought that, that's the opposite, that's always present then in the house. Mm-hmm. The thing is, they, these can be developed more or less. They arise, you know, you can develop strong mindfulness or weak mindfulness. Strong concentration, weak concentration. And sometimes buoyancy will be very strong and you'll feel very light in your body and mind. Other times it's present but not so strong. So these can be um, developed more or less. Like non-hate is loving-kindness, metta. If you practice a lot of metta, you're going to develop that mental factor to a really high degree. And, and it can be, be cultivated. 
the of course, they do, but you, if you can practice on one only, if you, in this case, you can practice on metta only to get a tremendous amount of loving-kindness. Of course, you become very calm and tranquil. I mean, it, and you have a lot of faith, and you become... These others arise, but the, the loving-kindness itself gets very highly developed. And when you practice insight, you develop mindfulness and wisdom, more so than the others. But along with it comes a lot of tranquility, non-hate, non-greed, and others. So, in terms of the ones, the qualities that aren't always present in wholesome ones, there's compassion and sympathetic joy because they're specialized. Yeah, compassion and Um, joy. They don't always arise, though. Now, what about wisdom? Wisdom doesn't always arise, either. Um, Because you can have... uh, Good-heartedness is not obvious wisdom, perhaps. You can, you can have mindfulness, and you can have some of these, these other wholesome ones, but the quality of wisdom, it may be different kinds of wisdom. There may be the general knowledge of, yes, this is a, a yellow blanket. That's, that's not wisdom. That's a type of knowledge that we're talking that's about here. Right. right. It's yeah. the difference between knowledge and wisdom. In this case, there's, there's this, this perception and recognition that mm-hmm. is a type of wisdom. There's other wisdom of understanding karma. If you see or act or speak in such a way knowing the law of karma, cause and effect, that is another uh, level or type of wisdom. And if you are practicing uh, jhana practice, for example, practicing metta, the wisdom you have is wisdom of jhana. You understand or you have the knowledge of jhana. If you practice insight and develop insight, then you develop insight wisdom. A wisdom of arising and passing away, anicca, anatta, dukkha. So there are different types of wisdom that can arise in different consciousness. What's the knowledge of jhana? Knowledge of jhana is the concentration states of mind. There is a wisdom that arises in the knowledge of the states of deep concentration or absorption. So, so all the others are always present? Uh, right. Um, I'll just the ones with the dots beside them, mm. they're the ones that aren't, that aren't always present. Well, in a wholesome one, wouldn't right speech, action, livelihood always be present just no. by the fact that the wrong one isn't present? The three abstentions, now they can be highly developed. They can be chosen as uh, something to practice in a particular moment. Right speech, right action or right livelihood. Stu, did you say that if indeed one has um, developed these wholesome qualities or mm. is experiencing these wholesome qualities, that the unwholesome ones automatically are not there anymore? Uh, where are they we? cannot coexist. Well, let's understand that the mind is fluxing at a very rapid rate. And in one of those flux, there could be wisdom, for example. And in the next one, there could be delusion. So there can it's not as if, as you develop wisdom, you never have any delusion. Because the moment is changing so quickly, or the mind is changing so quickly, it can... <laughs> It can appear that, yes, there are. Well, I was thinking about things like 
um, worry, for example, which is a, a rather common unwholesome quality I mm. have frequently experienced. Yeah. And I guess I've kind of conned my, uh, myself at moments aware or feeling that um, lovingness at the same time I'm feeling worried. It appears like it's at the same time, but it's not actually at the same time. It's so quick. It seems like it is, but if you really were seeing very clearly, you would see that it's not actually happening at the same time. The, the thing about one mind mind condition and the next, if these are all just sort of springing up, and you're, I mean, I think we all have the experience of being in a, in a, a wholesome mind state and maybe sitting occasionally, and then it's gone. I don't see the, I don't see any evidence of unconditioned, but there's any real sense of conditioning the next moment. Right. Otherwise, it seems to be a lot more momentum involved in the, the wholesome. The degree of conditioning from one particular moment to the next is its described in minute detail, but it's not as if there's a constant momentum that never changes, because all of these are changing so rapidly. There's not a direct one-to-one -one corresponding conditioning effect. What is that conditioning effect? What is the conditioning effect? And how is that explained? Because I've taken it to me and it's sort of one to one. Right, it's not a one to one. No, it's not a one to one. Uh, God, how do you begin this one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if you talk just about how quick it all is, it's like the perception, we've called ourselves like when we're talking even, like we don't hear words, we hear sound. And well, then there's such a quick course of yeah. cognition that you just. We put meaning on it. We think we hear words, but we don't hear words. That's how quick the, the court. It's all so quick, and this is just a very. What we experience is a very. It's so fast, and, yeah. and this yeah. is a much like larger grid. Mm -hmm. So it, it's giving the gist of it. Okay, I, I I I can go into some of that detail. If you look on the back of this this uh, paper, there's what's called a, a chart of the stream of consciousness. Okay. Now you see there are 17 spaces going across the page. Each one of those is a consciousness arising and passing away, arising and passing away. If you turn the page at an angle, you see that number one is called the life continuum. The life continuum is the... the oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, these are, these are 17 consciousness rapidly. Rising and passing away. The life continuum is a consciousness that we uh, that we cannot bring to consciousness in this lifetime. It has an object and it's caused by, conditioned by, last consciousness, previous life, if you believe that. And it's the rebirth consciousness of this of this lifetime, the rebirth consciousness, and it's. It's what's called the life continuum. It passes on the potential of this consciousness to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. Even, medita even a deep meditator doesn't, can't see that. Oh, no, no. It, yeah, you can. 
the meditator can, can see the effect of life continuums, but cannot know what that object is of that consciousness. They can't know what their own... No. It's, life continuum is the consciousness that's going on when you're in deep, deep sleep and not dreaming. Very low functioning, uh, low level of functioning. All three of them passing vibration on the rest of it? Yeah, this is, these are just life continuum that's just gone by, the life continuum vibrating, and the life continuum stopping. What's that mean when it stops? That's a consciousness that stops. Oh, a moment okay. of consciousness. That's a moment of consciousness. Okay. The next, the fourth is when the mind adverts to the object that's coming in. That turns to. Okay. The mind is turning to the sight or the sound or the whatever. Then, there is the sense consciousness itself, where that's when there's the actual seeing consciousness or the hearing consciousness mm -hmm. or whatever, okay? The receiving consciousness is when the mind receives that object. It investigates that object and it determines, the determining at this point is just determining whether it is a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, or a touch. That's all. Then, based on that, we react ethically to it. Either find it attractive or repulsive usually based on its pleasantness or unpleasantness. If it's pleasant, we're attracted to it, attached to it, and greed arises. If, we're, if it's unpleasant, aversion arises. If there's mindfulness, we can develop equanimity there. And the retaining consciousness is where the mind kind of locks in that, uh, not really a memory, but it reviews that object again. And all these go. We're we're reading we're reading horizontally across the page. This is this is time. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, up to seventeen. So it yes. goes this way. So that that goes in this um, sequence. Sequence, right? Right. It goes in this sequence. And then and then what happens? Okay. And where does is the, okay. the life continuum? Passing, so you started from somebody's death, right? No, prior to number one, there was a whole line of life continuums going on here. And then some object came in touch with the, with the sense. That means... Started to come in touch. That means we were at total rest. Total rest. Total rest. Okay, then the alarm clock goes. Okay. When the alarm clock goes and you're in total sleep, this happens. One life continuum stops, then it vibrates, then it stops. The mind turns to that thing. You know, there's hearing consciousness, the mind receives the sound, investigates the sound, determines that it is sound. Says it's awful. Responds horribly to it, <laughs> and then locks it in. As soon as that 17th consciousness, you lapse back into life continuum again. So that's, that's, what, the, so that's what the moment of, of consciousness is. That's what, like, well, when moments, you see something. They're, they're all moments of consciousness. They're all moments of consciousness. And also, there must be... I mean, that's just, say, taking, as far as I can understand, that's just taking, say, take the hearing. Okay. All um, those are just on the sound. Yeah, that's just But any sound. thoughts about it are completely... No, 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 that's, why, that's what we're going on to next. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate